0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 463. My name is Minter Dialogue, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on the Evergreen Network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview I'm very excited about. It's with Manfred Ketz de Vries, who's the Distinguished Clinical Professor of Leadership Development and Organizational Change at INSEAD, amongst other posts. He's held professorships at McGill University, the Ecole des Hautes Etudes Commerciales à Montréal, and the Harvard Business School, and has lectured at management institutions around the world. The Financial Times, Le Capital, Fred Charles and The Economist rated Manfred as one of the world's top 50 leading management thinkers as well as one of the most influential contributors to human resource management. He's the author, co-author, or editor of over 50 books and has published over 400 papers as articles or chapters in books. With Manfred, we discuss the most important shifts needed in leadership today. Storytelling, inner theater inventory, authentic organizations, and some of the other key concepts in his new book, The CEO Whisperer, Meditations on Leadership, Life and Change, one of the many books Manfred penned during the pandemic. You'll find all the show notes on Mindodile.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and please don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show, Manfred Ketsdeveries, I am thrilled to have you on my show. You are the second Insead professor I had. I've had the chance. Uh, to, ha- to have on my show. I've been tracking your work through all these years. Many years did I go, uh, go to INSEAD. And uh, you um, have been a, a fountain of inspiration, uh, t- saying it the way it is. And, and everybody I know that took your class back in those days, in the 90s, absolutely adored uh, having your class. So Manfred, in your own words, uh, describe us
1: who you are. You have many hats. Actually, I like to leave at the moment after the introduction, because I will never live up to those expectations. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I wear a number of hats and that's actually, um, I guess I started as an econ. I, I was first an, an, um, trying to be a failed engineer. I didn't last very long. I mean, I never made as an engineer. I failed, but I start, I mean, I, uh, I got depressed thinking about the time I had to spend in the laboratory. Then I began to as a negative choice, became an economist. Uh, but I also had some interest in psychology. So then I took and I remember when I did my uh, it was in Holland. It's called Economisch doctorandus. It's a master's degree. I took an, and I had a fantasy, a romantic fantasy about um, boats. So I got an uh, one of those freighters, and it was the most boring. I mean, I was a famous Dutch writer at the time who wrote. Who was was basically he was a doctor on a boat and he wrote romantic stories, but. My boat was boring, and I couldn't. I couldn't it was totally boring, uh, and I got off as quickly as possible in Boston. Walked to the Harvard Business School. I had actually been at a program, at uh, uh, the kind of the summer program at Harvard, which I very much enjoyed because, uh, I mean, I come from fairly you know in those days people didn't travel so much, and uh, uh, I met lots of people from different countries. And so I talked myself into a special program called the International Teachers Program. At the time, it was the, the way of the Harvard Business School to propagate the case method. And the, basically, it was, a, it was in one year of st- studies. You could pick whatever you wanted, uh, but you had to take one course on case on cases. That was important after all you were trying For to be course. an advocate. And uh, there was one course recommended by the advisor at the time. It was called psychoanalytic Psychology and Management Theory. I think this is crazy. And so I said, I should take that. So I still remember it so clearly, because the first assignment was reading the, the biography of Freud. If you ever seen it, it's three volumes. And my English was not so good. And I was, you know, I mean, you have an assignment, you do it. And that's my fantasy about it. And I thought it was going to be a seminar. So I spent a whole week reading the three volumes. And I, of course, I was the only one of the whole <laughs> <day>. <laughs> It was so crazy. <laughs> But then suddenly I got into another world, which was interesting at that time, you know, coming from a different country. And you had to read the Red Man, the Wolfman and the psychotic Dr. Schreber case studies. And it was kind of strange, you know, going from economics to that. And I, the man who was teaching that was a man called Abraham Selesnik, who became my mentor. And so I got into the doctoral program on the way there and also an MBA. And so, uh, and then I had to find a job. Also, I want to become a psychoanalyst because Celestin was the only person that at the business school was a psychoanalyst. So I thought uh, that would be good. There's, there's a good dish. Uh, I don't know. It was a little bit crazy, actually, to become a, psycho- to become a psychoanalyst is a little bit nuts because it's such a lengthy process. Anyhow, I needed a job. And since I had chosen Celestin, who in his own narcissism had split off from the organization department. I was not a good politician. I should have joined the other group. Uh, I didn't get a job because I was the crown prince, you see, and the crowns uh, get beheaded. So I've, I, I first went to INSEAD and then I got fired there, actually. I've been the only one fired and rehired. I was there two, two years, and I still remember the dean at the time who didn't know how to say that I was fired. He couldn't, he couldn't say it. So I only realized when I was walking out the door, it was the same language <laughs> approach, you know, a lot of good news and then shuffling the bad news very quickly and then the good news again. So actually, uh, insult should be the faculty should be very grateful to me because after that, they realized if I was going to be fired, many other people would get fired. And so they have now a faculty evaluation committee. You can be fired like that. And that time it was a cabal. Anyhow, I was not really uh, upset about it. Went, went back to Harvard, still didn't get a job there, a more longer term job because of my crown prince role, because the OB department was, I mean, I mean I, in a way you might know that yourself, but academics can be fantastic in character. The, Character uh, assassination, and still remember that at the time the head of the department. He will never write anything. Very good motivation, by the way, to tell you you never write. <laughs> yeah, you'll never be good enough. <laughs> oh after fifty-three books or so, you will never write anything. And whatever you get, get with somebody else. You can do it alone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyhow, somebody took. Uh, Insha was willing to get me back. It was interesting. They felt they had made a mistake, and but at the same time I got an offer from uh, Henry Minzberg. You might have heard of him. Mm-hmm famous professor at in management and I had been doing a stress study for the Canadian broadcasting corporation Anyhow, as long as I'm telling a long story anyhow I said I know in Seattle, let me go to uh, Montreal and I can do my second training which I did there which was very interesting so to really mix uh, yeah mix psychiatry and management uh, it was very much, you know you know dominated by the Department of Psychiatry, actually, my and uh, my analyst, uh D'Angier was the head of the Allen, which was the major mental health think tank at the time in Canada, and also the head of psychiatry, which I had um, again, I'm in this naive. I picked him because I felt he was a mensch, a human being, as opposed mm-hmm. to some analyzing machines, whatever you might call. It. But I didn't realize that was a masterstroke because he was, you know, having him as my analyst. People were dancing around because. So I graduated very quickly, actually. That was very. It went very quick. So, at I became an analyst and a professor of management. Then, eventually, I decided to go back to uh, to Europe, which uh, had to do the winters. I like Montreal, by the way. It's a,
0: so do I. I lived there for four years.
1: Yeah, it's an, it's a nice city. It's a nice city to bring up children, but uh, it's a long winter. It is yeah my wife is Swedish, and she already had some, seen some long winters in, in Sweden. Sure. So uh, so and, and the best place in Europe happened to be uh, in Seattle, so I went there. And, and so I got uh, so I, I taught for a long time on my course on uh, organizational behavior, which you said as well I, I really enjoyed it. It was a real entertainment to really get the students in. I am mean, I'm a good entertainer in that respect.
0: This is true i confirm.
1: <laughs> well, very good an entertainment there, but uh, then I decided at one point to uh, do something else, and I started to what I call sometimes, actually it's called by one of my colleagues, my CEO recycling seminar, which I've been doing actually too long maybe, I'm the, I've been doing that for a long time, but the reason I'm doing it is, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, when you do an MBA class, you have your cases, or whatever it might be, and you know you have an idea about the general gist of it. But this, when I take 21 executives, senior executives, and I never know, uh, you know, I have to be spontaneous. I give a few lecturettes, but for the rest, it's all up to them.
0: It's a bunch of cats, right?
1: Exactly. And uh, at, this, at Around that time also, I got one dean asked me to, since I was the only one at the time. Now everybody talks about leadership. I was the only one who uh, talked about leadership. They asked me because there was a report by the Boston Consulting Group to um, that we talk about leadership for the world, but we have no leadership programs really. So I I became the I, became, I had to set up a global leadership center, which was not that easy because of uh, you know, the way uh, resource allocation and things like that. And that time. I also started a program called Coaching and Consulting for Change. It became a master degree program. So it was very early in the game. Now everybody in the kitchen thinks is it's a coach, but and, uh, I, had, I joined up with two colleagues who were both, both psychoanalysts, one American, but trained in Germany, and one Dutch, trained in Holland. And um, So this is, has become a very successful master degree program which uh, number of sections in Singapore and in, uh, in, in, per- in, in, in Fontainebleau. Um, so I did that for a while. Uh, I had to also, as a, I had to become a little bit of a manager, an academic entrepreneur, because uh, I, the, at the time that dean was then in power, starved me for resources, so I had to be very um, yeah, resourceful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, deans are sometimes uh, not not very visionary. he was not one of the visionary ones they're called the they're called Dean counters instead of bean counters he was literally a bean counter that's his background <laughs> unsurprisingly <laughs> that was the problem too <laughs> I claim to fame. anyhow uh <clears throat> so I did that for a while and uh, at this point actually uh, I guess I got more interested in uh, maybe my age uh, in in um, so from looking at organizations, looking at individuals, um, and I've written lots, on, you know, lots of articles and books on narcissism. I guess one of my la- latest book was called Leadership Unhinged, which is really where I talk about not the dark triad, which I don't like the term because it doesn't make sense to me, but the dark diet, because they put the dark triad, as you might know, it's narcissism, and, uh, you know, psychopathology and um, and Machiavellianism, but Machiavellianism is a derivative, so I think it's better mm. to look at the dark diet. And of course, we had such a great example of a dark diet for a long time, running the, the most powerful country in the world, which is, um, is quite um, remarkable. So I got more interested in mass. Master- you, you mean China? Uh, no. <laughs> oh,
0: oh, oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: sorry. That's another. There's another. <laughs> Well, that's a good guess, actually. <laughs> I, I wrote once an article, uh, in also in the book, I have an art. I have a chapter on, you know, I make an ad- advocacy like uh, we need more leaders for life, which is very good for for good for everybody. Yeah. And um, so, but that, that's where uh, see Jinping fits into the picture. Indeed, and, uh, he's, he's for- a lifer. Yeah.
0: So, so Manfred, a a wonderful uh, career. You know, I I can't help but think: How do you advise people to follow their passion when you have had such a circuitous route and gone through so many different parts of businesses? And when when you look back, what is it that people should be doing to in order to land on the thing that makes them tick?
1: No, I mean it's. uh, I'm a very you know one of the things people tell me. That I can, I'm not, I don't see myself as very original, but I can take sometimes, I'm Dutch, you know, Dutch is low context culture. The yeah. lowlands. Now, actually, in my class, we say sometimes, let's talk Dutch now, no more bullshit, no more go around mm. into circles. And uh, so I am a good translator of um, trying to take, I mean, for example, psychoanalysts, when you look at psychoanalytic writing, it's so convoluted.
0: Yeah, Carl Jung.
1: I, I am. Mean, Jung is actually not even so bad, and Freud got the Goethe Award for his writing. <laughs> or got the Nobel Prize, but other ones are such terrible writers. And the terms they use to really, I mean, it's a little bit like I get irritated when I get a doctor's uh, exam and I see all those words and I have no idea what they're talking about. I just used. I mean, I mean, taught. Use your client's language. So talk their language. Don't hide behind words. You know, it's a social defense. And so I am a, a good translator. And like simple things. I mean, I like, for example, two by two matrices. So you can put for example, a simple two by two matrices. The BCG. Yeah, but it's not a BCG one they are more they, are, they think more complex because they have to sell themselves. Of course. Uh, I mean I spent quite some time with the with their competitor McKinsey trying to make them more human beings to some extent. Um, but you know two by two is would be like, don't like, important, not important. So, that's one of the little simple things. So, um, unimportant, don't like, where are you there? You're never going to give, you know, you don't like it. It takes you, it sucks energy, and you're never going to be good at it. Um, Like, not important, go fishing. It's good for the soul. I mean, there's a Dutch word, as you know, called Nixon. You might have heard it, Nixon. (laughs) It means doing nothing. It's good for the soul doing nothing. Of course, you never do nothing. If you really do nothing, you're dead. Your brain is dead. So you are in only... the far niente. Yeah, no, it's, it's good. I wrote some few articles about it, doing nothing, but it's uh, you don't do nothing when I, I mean, most of my books I've written, walk in the Chardin de Luxembourg or so. And I walk around and look at the children play or I go swimming or whatever. I might walk on the beach if I'm on the beach or in the forest. That's why I write my books. Of course, I write it down here, but I uh, the ideas are there. I mean, the fame i'm a great believer in the three Bs of creativity you know the bet the bass, and the bus you know, so uh, although i don't drive uh, driving is the of course nowadays with uh, all your gimmicks on your phone that's not you don't get much peaceful the piece there so so coming back to my little matrix then you have a like important you should do that and uh, and uh, and so you have this you have this the four quadrants so what i tell people now what gives you energy? That's that's an actually unconscious way because 95% of our behaviors are unconscious, unconscious way of getting a sense of uh, what's important to you, what gives you energy, and also what drains you of energy, you know. And like of course, you can have the whole situation of being with toxic people. So try to, I mean, talk about happiness and positivity and things like that. I mean, try to avoid toxic people and entropy. Uh, yeah, and sometimes, of course, you cannot, you know, might be close family members too. You might be unlucky there. But, anyhow, that's uh, so. So, I try to. I'm also you know, coming back to, you know, I, 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 I do quite some consulting still. You now, a lot of it online. You know, although I get a little bit tired of two dimensionality. It's nice to see people in the field. But it does certainly beats traveling. Traveling has become such a pain in the neck, as you know. That's so. true. And so I people, people have the fantasy that I've been a good coach. I tell them I'm a terrible coach. Because good coaches ask complex, interesting, deep questions. I'm I'm all over the place. I tell them they're they're, they're, full of, they're, you know, they're full of idiocy. They are idiots. I give them advice. I'm all over the place. And you know, people make it even be life coaches, career coaches, skill coaches. I once wrote a little article about score coaching BS. I mean, uh, and they have models. I mean, uh, models, of course, are ways of dealing with anxiety, and it's, of course, nice. You have a little more, but of course, we have models in our head. But to to hang yourself up on models, I mean, I do anything what works. I stand on my head to get some movement, from paradoxal intervention, positive reframing, deep psychoanalytical. Although I'm also cynical about that because it's sometimes too simplistic. Dream interpretation, like in my class. They come in my class and I I said, do you dream? He said, I think I dream, but I don't remember. Two days later, they all are dreaming happily and and, and offering their dreams and trying to to make some sense of it. Of course, that's wild analysis, because the only one who can really make sense of your dream is you, if you really know yourself, which of course you don't know yourself because you have too many defenses. But some people want to at least make an effort to know themselves better. And that's the reason they come to my class. So why do they come to my class? They are midlife usually, and like also the people in the other, the master course, they are midlife and start to have some existential concern. You know, they when you are under forty, you're immortal. Over forty, time left to live. You look at your body and it's falling apart. Your hair is falling out. You know, your wrinkles, eye, eye glasses, hearing aids, whatever it might be. And you're not. And for men, you are no longer Don Giovanni, which also uh, really hurts. So uh, those narcissistic injury gets at you.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine just did some research or, or at least plowed into some research that showed that actually we peak in income revenues in our early 40s as well. And that generally after that, we're struggling, changing careers. And um, yeah, and we're getting older. <laughs> so I have a question for you, Manfred. You mentioned we have these models in our heads and and but also think we have stories in our heads and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves—tell us, tell. How do you describe or or change the definition of model versus
1: stories in our heads? You touch upon a very important topic. Uh, my wife tells me that I'm a storyteller,
2: hmm.
1: and um, and I don't really. I mean, I guess. Listening to, basically, for example, my quote unquote, not called that way, my CEO recycling seminar is called the challenge of leadership, developing your emotional intelligence, whatever. Um, but it's the life case study. I mean, I've written probably more than hundred case studies myself. You know, I went to that famous international teachers program and I was in, but anyhow, uh, so it was, it's rather handy, but uh, there I have 21 people in class who have their own story. And so uh, to make so yeah, I listen to stories. I let them tell their story, and of course, having listened for so many years to so many stories, there are so many stories in my head, consciously or unconsciously. And so it stimulates me to when they tell the story, I can tell another story. React, you know, I had an experience. as that. and I think story we are from Paleolithic times. We are storytellers, think by campfires and telling each other stories, and it is the most powerful way of disseminating knowledge as opposed to. Now I'm giving some figures, some pure figures because you slurred. I, mean, uh, I mean, I always say the average attention span of <clears throat> my students is 20 minutes. After 20 minutes, they start to <clears throat> sorry, fantasize. And for men, I get something like 70, 80% of the fantasies of a sexual nature. No, women are not so. So don't confuse your fantasies with their fantasies because you might get yourself into trouble, but that's what it is. And so, but if you tell stories that really, because we are we are very self-centered, you start to relate it to yourself. So the, fa- the mere fact, that's what's an eye-opener for the people say, listen, we have 21 people in class, so 21 people are going to tell their stories, must be quite boring. No, because every story you tell, you relate it to yourself and you said, I had a similar experience, or I was different, was I lucky that this happened to me, Etc. Cetera, et cetera, So storytelling is the most powerful tool you can have in education. And some people are very good storytellers, other less storytellers, but it's important. And of course, uh, if you can, if you have the element of also sometimes taking a meta perspective to look at your story from a distance and say, so what what happened to me? And that's what I try to do really, Uh, how to to create more reflective leaders, not having a knee jerk reaction. And the sad thing is, as you probably know, many executives self-destruct, when you become, you know, the, the famous word uh, hubris, excessive pride is such a true situation when you are, you need to be somewhat narcissistic to go to the top, and, but it gets accentuated by the perks of the top. So, I mean, I've seen it too many times, going to certain banks and the private elevators, the private dining rooms, I mean, all the people tiptoeing around you, you know, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't- Dans it, la cour, as we say in French. It very quickly can go to your head. Yeah, so, I certainly
0: uh, saw a lot of that.
1: And you say you, got, you start to surround yourself by an echo chamber after a while, and you can make you don't get the information anymore. And people start to filter information. I mean, look at look at the craziness of Trump by his cabinet meetings so where people have to say hail to the chief before they yeah. start. It was so nuts. I mean. You start to wonder about the average intelligence of a voter sometimes, I and mean, when you look at that, and say, "Listen, this is an You know, this is certainly not a healthy sign." In other situations, people would be institutionalized.
0: Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B two B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about, and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Well, I, I, I do think that the uh, part of our problem is that as a society, we're not doing enough analysis and investigation and, and doing the hard work with the responsibility of voting. No. But when you when you talk about storytelling, uh, I certainly believe that I was able to tell stories when I was running a company worldwide, <clears throat> but it takes time to tell stories. It doesn't look like you're being the hyper-efficient, super-effective dude who's leading and charging and, you know, do this, do that, and executing and what the CEO is all about.
1: That's, that's, an, that's an illusion. Come on. You know better. Of and course, good CEO is a good storyteller. That's what it is. I mean, but why don't more CEOs, more
0: leaders get into storytelling and allow for it to happen? Because I, I, my, my personal feeling is that a good story is personal. A good story has to relate into you personally. Otherwise, it's just like some sort of superficial rendering, some Teflon story that you're just delivering out. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that so many CEOs aren't, I don't have the, the confidence or something
1: to actually let that personal side come out. Maybe you should teach them. I mean, the the, the, the biggest phobias of CEOs, um, I mean, public speaking and fear of spiders, maybe, and snakes. <laughs> and, some, uh, and death, I'm sure. <laughs> Now that they don't talk about that, they keep that uh, somewhere. They put it. But be very good in compartmentalization. <clears throat> no, I mean that would be. Uh, I think they could really benefit. I, I think in our advanced management program, one of the things you have to do is to tell your story in five minutes. You know to learn. I ask my students if you have to give a speech uh, <clears throat> to your. You're invited by your college or university to give the graduation speech. So you have. You know, it shouldn't be too long. I've seen, I remember one, one CEO of a pharmaceutical company obviously gave quite some money to our school. He couldn't stop. And of course, the students want to have some champagne and want to have see their, see their family members. So the paper airplanes were flying around. And he <laughs> saw it. He never looked up from his text. I remember also, I think it was the, it was the head of the BCG at the time. He was fantastic. In, in 15 minutes, he said some of the lessons learned and it was, but to make him to to tell a story which is personal which he did um telling and telling those young you know because trophy would be mckinsey and bbcg or so or whatever and some investment bank you know tell them about some of the personal things he learned Was and it's quite a quite good good challenge and and that i think uh, could be good training for um any any ceo to is he is he should be a coach of course that's ask ask uh, these people to tell stories i actually Many years ago, I went, I was asked to go to Saudi Arabia for, and I, I mean, I had become an advocate of team coaching. I mean, I probably of the persons who had been, you know, this, probably one of the distinct, distinctive comp- competencies. I'm pretty good at. Give me one neurotic executive team, top executive team, and make something out of it. Unless they're completely psychotic, I've seen it also, but it's rare. And there was an executive team of a very large company in Saudi Arabia. and. and and the Manhattan was an interesting way he got about it. He uh, he picked, if you uh, you know, I think at the time, of course, I'm sure the Saudi Arabia is changing now, uh, to um, uh, to find people who are achievement oriented. Those people, those people usually went to the petroleum institute, I understand, and then if they were good, they got a scholarship to go to America to do a doctorate. So you could call it maybe doctor in nuclear physics or whatever. But if you do a doctorate in engineering, whatever it might be, that's not a training for being a team player. And that's you know you are and and so he had to build a team. So he, and then he had to go. They had to go back, but I understand. And they had to teach at the university where there were many very boring, boring, bored students, which was not exactly the greatest stimulus. So he would ask them, you know, can you tell us? I mean, there's a new management book comes out. Can you tell a story? Tell me, tell the people who are there, us, summarize and tell a story about it. And it was a very good way, I felt, to to get a sense how good they were in you know disseminating knowledge to other people. And that's, I think, an important factor for any anybody, particularly in particular when you're in a high tech in high tech environment. But you know, the training, you 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 should prop that you're you propagate it more. I, mean, I do my I do my part of it. I'm I mean, with you. Hey, I, Manfred,
0: I'm with you. And and I. <laughs> So, I I did a, a documentary film on the Second World War. And the reason why I did it outside of a professional space is it's about professionalizing the idea of telling a story. How much pathos do you want to include according to the medium that you're using? Because if you use film, the pathos is much stronger. So, dial it back because you don't want to overdo it. If you're writing a book, it's pretty dry. How do you? pep it up and make it fun like you're in the CEO whisper you start off with this long story which by the way I thought was completely fabricated but you kept on referring to it so like oh my god it's real
1: it's real it's real <laughs> and stories yeah, I, begets... I, made, I made I made some changes of course otherwise. okay okay well including the name I'm sure but it, it's actually it was worse it was worse
0: <laughs> oh boy but I mean stories beget stories so not only is a story a fascinating way to transmit your message, mm-hmm. it makes people engage into it and, and then connect into it, which is really so important when you're talking about building a team, because you you relate in, especially when the story is personal, because then you're, you're, you're engaging at a different
1: level. Of course, one thing what I struggle with, when people tell me stories in my class, for example, um, and you probably know the the, con- the the concept of negative capability, which is, comes actually from pope, an English pope, poet, and uh, the element of not knowing. I listen to a person's story, and since I'm supposed to be the specialist, you know, I'm sitting in front of the class, <laughs> I'm supposed to know, they don't really know, that the older I get, the less I know. This is, that's my That has been an exponential curve. So I sit there and listen and said, what the hell is he really telling? Because there's a story underlying the story. Yeah. What is really going on? And I sit there and struggle. Now, in the beginning, I used to be anxious because I wanted closure. And now I know that the class is going to help me. There are a lot of brains there and slowly the real story comes out of there, but it's still it's still and sometimes it will never come out of there. but generally it comes. And so the, the, I think that's probably my head as a psychoanalyst, because you talked about different heads. I had a, as a management professor, I had an economist, maybe had as a uh, general human being, and but also I'm a psychoanalyst. Uh, and, although as, as I as try to tell people, I'm not a religious psychoanalyst. I do anything that works. I, um, I mean, uh, Freud had a lot of good ideas, a lot of bad ideas too. So um, and I'm I'm very interested in evolutionary psychology, developmental psychology, cognition, all those neuro neuropsychiatry, So I mix all those kind of things to try to make sense out of it. But what is the story behind the story? Which also to me interesting. What is going on? What What is the What is the person struggling with? What is What is he or she trying to disseminate to us? And what is not being said? That's also quite interesting because you have a story and said something doesn't sit together. It doesn't make sense. There's something missing. What kind of sense? Of course, you can say to people, tell me everything, as a psychoanalyst would do. That's, of course, bullshit. Nobody tells everything. You censor. And of course, when you start to have more trust, that's, by the way, and of course, a factor in or I mean, I've been, made lots of plea for, uh, you know, what I try to do is to make, to create more reflective leaders, <clears throat> but also create better places to work. Because as you know, from uh, when the, the Gallup polls around 80% of people are not engaged it's That's for sure terrible. it's terrible so what can you do to have people more fuller life more balanced life and and uh, how, how they can to give the most of their energy coming back to my energy barometer to the things they they are good at and I'm making the right choices one
0: of the things Manfred you you talk a lot about mm. and I really I had a great time reading the CEO whisperer I know you've written a whole slew of books and unfortunately we can't get into them Mm. through this pandemic but uh, certainly cause for reason to for everybody listening to go jump in and check out your body of work but something that's obviously running through all of what you write about is this idea of self-reflection and self-awareness getting to know who you are as a leader and tapping into what's important to you what is your purpose so the question I have, and it's probably a vast question, but I don't know how you want to handle this. But what is you when you are trying to understand who you are? The container of you. There's the name. There's the title. There's the me on a good day. There's me on a bad day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and how do you how do you actually? Is it even possible to have full knowledge of self?
1: No, no. That is, I mean, you. Uh, that's I think very difficult. And um, to help you to, to see through your biases, the various defense mechanism, it's important usually to have some guidance. And um, of course, that's part of the psychoanalytic process that you uh, add two analysts. One quite famous here in France, um, Kiwi, uh, Joyce McDougall, who wrote a little a lot about, I, people think that the idea of the inner theater is for me. It's not for me, it's from her. She wrote a number of books about the theater of the mind, theater of the body, and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> then I had a second one in Montreal who was the head of psychiatry, um, um, Maurice Dongier. And so they were very helpful to make some sense, but it's a work in progress. You know, it, you know also new new life experiences come. And uh, so, you know, in that respect, you know, people say I want to go into psychoanalysis. It's quite luxury to be. You know, so many times a week, just uh, of course people had prayer and things like that. So sort, uh, sort of mentor a priest, whatever it might be, or a rabbi or whatever it. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, some people are lucky; they have some good friends or they have a good partner. You know, I mean, I mean also a wife, husband who can help them. And. I, I was I was a few years ago before the pandemic I was in uh, Malaysia and there is an, uh, there's a tribe there I was fishing I, was, I went for snake the snake fish strange fish which uh, which um, is it a primitive fish which has to go up and breathe but uh, snakehead fish a snakehead is called I was curious about that so I was with a friend and there was a tribe there the senoy, the samoy i think senoy? samoy. And they had a habit, M or an N, I'm not sure. Uh, they had a habit apparently, which is like maybe it's just a story, that they every morning they would tell each other their dreams. And I'm a strong, and that was a good, and they, one was a dissertation written about the belief that, that they had great mental health because they were trying to detoxify certain. I mean, dreams are very often a way of practicing difficult situations, particularly when, when young people. And, and that's the reason uh, youngsters have so many night, nightmares means uh, children I'm talking about. Otherwise, of course, it's uh, dreams are trying to tell you certain things you don't want to hear in daily life. So I, I, I pay attention to my dreams and when uh, and the nightmares, adults don't have many nightmares. But if you have repetitive dreams and nightmares, there's something going on with you and you don't want to listen. You are you're refusing to, to listen to that. But as I said, it's uh, it's not bad. And if you're a coach, for example, and so many coaches, uh, it can be a very lonely existence and you get lots of toxic material. Your garbage can. People throw garbage into you and you have to detoxify it. And so I think it's a very important factor to, um, to have supervision, to talk to people about it and try to get some other point of view and maybe give the toxic material, <laughs> move it onward one way or another. It's, um, and again, it has you know when you talk about the talking cure, when you talk about storytelling, the talking cure. Just the mere fact I see that when people tell their stories about their life, it's like you know you have making. You talk about films, making a documentary. And what are you going to put in documentary? What kind of events are you going to put in documentary? Because you don't have enough time to put everything in documentary. And uh, you know, and it has a very cathartic exper- experience when people listen attentively. Uh, just listen, because I I don't I tell people not to, to interrupt. Let them talk. They have they have so much time to talk, and after that they can have some questions of clarifications only. And then the listener has to shut up and just listen to the free associations of the people, what they make out of it, what's what they think is going on, what are some of the issues, and how they can be helpful, given their own experiences and can their own story. I had when I was in youth situation, I, that kind of thing. And that, goes, that makes the seminar so powerful because, I mean, in the, in the, the most programs, the, 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 the master degree program, the powerfulness of these programs are not just the conceptual material, which is also given. It is that you have an, you get a, a fairly intense form of psychotherapy in a group setting that, because you know, I had, for example, I had, I had recently had a person in my class who obviously uh, was a micromanager. And he was very successful in being a micro-manager because it was not, the company was not so big yet. But the, but he had been so successful that he may become a victim of his success. But he refused to see it. He felt it was appropriate that he would act that way. And so the famous statement that that's the advantage of a group setting: when one person tells you you're ears like a donkey, ignore it. But if ten people tell you your ears like a donkey, you might get yourself a saddle, you know. And so. I made a slight comment about maybe he should look into it, but he basically it was Teflon. Then the next day I felt maybe we should pick it up again and see some have some more discussion about his way of managing his business. So he talked again and then suddenly the whole class got loose and they all told him stories about what how it, how it ends in misery. and that time, I think he heard it he heard it now i'm curious because i'm going to see him next week on yeah yeah, next week and see what he has done you know that's a change You, you know obviously that when you're the leader
0: at the top of the pyramid it's a lonely place you talk about that and people tend to tell you what they think you want to hear as opposed to what you need to hear and so creating an environment where you have a mentor or you have peers that you trust and who are prepared to listen and hmm. with some level of, of uh, good intentionality, giving you feedback. I think that's also another thing that's really a missing piece with so many leaders who in their tour d'ivoire, or their ivory tower, they, they don't have the information, they're not connecting with people, they have this narcissism that's going to their head and, and they forget how they got there they they forget their personal story and i suppose i'm wondering if by telling your story as you were talking about or or talking about your dreams would you characterize that as a way to unwire to dewire some of the thinking the programming the story that you've gotten fixed in your mind about who you are and can't be anything else
1: yeah but as i said it's um, that's the reason i I prefer to work in, as in team setting because it goes mm. faster. It's, of course, it's you will divide, but it takes longer. Uh, like, for example, this gentleman who is this micromanager. If I would be, I have another person who's also a micromanager who is now, but it takes more time. I've been hammering at him in a friendly way, you know, and trying to see the paradoxical nature of the things. And of course, the first thing, of course, in any relationship is that you have, that person feel that you have the best interest at heart. That's mm-hmm. what they call you know the working alliance. You develop a working alliance, but in a group setting, it becomes more powerful because a lot of the work, for example, in the class next week, is not done in class. It's done at breakfast time, at lunch time, at dinner time. People make the jokes, coffee break. Exactly, making jokes about the person again, and so it is really slowly. It, it's, and that is the the power of this kind of kind of programs where people tell stories, and. Uh, and the, the little anecdotes are being told in between, and so slowly they start to say, maybe, maybe. And then, of course, I sometimes say I work on shame and guilt because people have lots of good intentions. I start dieting, exercising, whatever, but uh, then they fall back into the old patterns. So I don't believe some in programs which are. I mean, nothing bad about a quickie, you know, but <laughs> but, uh, but my programs are long, so. For example, this program is four weeks over a year. And I actually have them three times, two and a half months in between. Then I wait half a year and see if they're really you know, walking the talk, all the things they've promised to do. Because now it's not, it's not just me, it's the whole group. Because the group is in their head.
0: You have to be accountable
1: to the group. Yeah. And of course, nowadays with some technology, like WhatsApp has been a real, a real good thing because all those groups are on WhatsApp and they communicate with each other. So you get reinforced in between; otherwise, was a big period in between. So yes, so the group, the group intervention method, goes a little bit quicker.
0: So you, you uh, there's another theme or, or that you talk about, which is, and it's a little hard word to say, but an authentizotic organization.
1: I knew you were going to get there. Yes.
0: <laughs> oh, what My- is it? What is it? And and what? How do you achieve it?
1: That's of course paradise. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it's like like it's uh, the impossible dream. No, I mean, I, I have written some articles about authentic and authentic, authentic organization. It's even I think a Portuguese maintenance and authentic test. Which um, uh, it's, you know, the two Greek words is my narcissism. I decide to de- develop a word, authenticos and zotikos, but basically a place where you feel alive. Now, organizations, as you all know, are not democratic institutions. It's the guerrilla model, not the bonobo model of management. It's not a networking model with all the excuses people maybe are very hierarchical. And I mean, and they are also containers of paranoid and depressive anxiety. Coming back to organizations, and so how to create an atmosphere where people can be a little bit vulnerable? Storytelling, by the way, is a way to show some vulnerability, and uh, and and vulnerability makes for how do you create some trust? And that's what I try to do. So, for example, when you have a team, an executive team. I uh, have I, When I was the director of the Global Leadership Center, I went into an area which I don't like, but I seem to be have been pretty good at it, psychometrics, Psychoma- of all things, me and psychometrics, so I developed uh, quite a number of psychometric tests, because I had to help my coaches, because I had this whole um, stable of coaches, and since coaching is not mass production, I can teach. Ten people, and I've done once in in, in Moscow in the Olympic Stadium. Twenty thousand people entertain. That has got kind of crazy. So, but coaching is bricolage, small work, and so the the way it's structured, they don't have much time. So I needed some material for them, so they could work with that. So I developed a 360 test, and uh, and that has been uh, you know the. Uh, the way to actually, uh, uh, what I can, coming back, how to create an organization where people feel somewhat safe, where people feel alive, they can talk. And to have this team setting, I look at the statistics of the psychometric test. I see this person, no emotional intelligence, terrible in team, has no vision. Of course, I don't have to tell him or her that. I mean, you, know, you don't have to be a whiskey to see the, you can see the graphs. And the, but then I asked to tell your story. And I I did it actually with a lot of well-known companies. You know, one one premier strategic consulting firm. They and they start to pick up my way of doing it. But you know, you want you want to ask yourself, why is this person has become a, you know, a director coming from Greece is now working in New York as you know one one of the the directors of this premier strategic consulting firm, Uh, and. Uh, the, those, 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 those graphs don't give it, but tell your story, how what you do. And it is very powerful. And when you do that, when you have a team of that, I mean, this company, for example, is a consultant for a pride to sell will be the best in leadership. But you know, to have a team, you know, one person from, from Sydney, one person from Bombay, one person from Frankfurt, they have to work as the other as a team. But how can you really work together as a team and you don't know each other? So when you have told your story, you have a network, a very powerful network. You have heard the things about the person, you feel comfortable with the person, you know why the person is the way they act, the way they do. You make some contracts between the person. So the storytelling is an extremely powerful way of creating teams. And that's what I've been doing. And that's the way I've been trying to create this authentic, organization. Basically, organization which are aligned, where people exchange knowledge, the people feel relatively safe. It's all relative because, again, Organizations are not democracies. If you are the leader of the the pack, you know that eventually you might make some decisions about the career, salary, whatever it might be. And it's always there. It's always hovering around there. And even though companies try to split, you know, you are a judge and you are a coach. But it's always there, you know. You have performance appraisal, and then you have a developmental appraisal. you have to split it. It's, it's you know you have been exposed opposed to that. It's a little bit of a farce in that respect because the reality is it's it's a, it's a fantasy. But I but coming back to the Exotic organization, it's my it's maybe my way to create to to show uh, what can be what you can aim for to give people voice. They feel that they're involved. To give them a certain sense of safety, because most top executive teams, I mean, that a wo- woman in uh, Amy Atkinson, I think, talk about safety. Um, but really, we talk about trust. But many people don't feel safe in organizations. They feel, you know, this, this paranoia is always there. And we are, from an evolutionary point of view, if you look in the bushes, you see this kind of a rosy thing over. You think, okay, it could be wild strawberries or could be the tongue of a sable-toothed tiger you know it better be on your guard in any event there'll be brambles <laughs> that's true. That's true hey
0: Manfred um just delightful so many of the things you have spoken about the stories you've told resonate already just with me mm-hmm. and I really appreciate you being a voice of of bringing that authenticity that but that's a real authenticity one that includes my vulnerabilities my imperfections and understands that we are human beings, and even though we might have a big title, we need to know how to uh, be real. Uh, how can how how can you recommend people get in touch, or at least to get your books? Do you just say go to that Amazon company in Seattle, or do you have a, a, other places you like people to follow you, see your readings and writings?
1: I, I started once a consulting firm actually, which is now run by my daughter, and they are busily. I mean, I. I'm the, I'm supposed to be the chairman, but that's a, that's a more an, an honorary title. I mean, I'm since I've written quite a few books on uh, on family business, I decided to be an, an exemplary. So she's in charge, and I have I'm basically she's doing a terrific job. And uh, but they they can always they can always type in KDVI and they see lots of seminars workshops which are being done, which probably might originally have a stamp of my, me there and sometimes I even participate depending on my mood so that's uh, but you know that's uh, I can only do so much I unfortunately I'm cloning cloning is that's what's all about <laughs> hey new technology thank
0: you thank you so much Manfred it's been a great pleasure it was a pleasure thank you for inviting me thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast if you like the show or would like to support me please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash you can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service and as ever rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts you'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com check out my documentary film and four books including my last one You Lead How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader and to finish here's a song I wrote Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me, precipitating the danger. Anticipating the thrill of your intellect, maybe I tell myself there's no use in me lying. I'm a convinced man building an urge. I'm a convinced man to live and die subversive. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man. Challenge my fate, I'm a convinced man, competition's innate, I'm a convinced man, in the arms of a woman, Despite revenges and struggle with deceit, live for the challenge so life's not incomplete, what's wrong with challenge, I know soon we all die. the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why I'm a convinced man practicing my lines I'm a convinced man here in these confines a convinced man in the arms of a woman